0: Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In Reconstructing the Talmud, an introduction to the academic study of rabbinic literature published by Hadar Press in 2017, Joshua Culp and Jason Rogoff introduces the modern Talmud student to the techniques developed over the last century for uncovering how this literature developed. This work introduces the reader to the world of academic Talmud research and opens new venues of exploration and understanding of one of the world's great literary treasures. Joshua Culp earned a PhD in Talmud from Bar-Ilan University and is a co-founder of the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem, where he has taught Talmud and Jewish law for the last two and a half decades. Jason Rogoff earned a PhD in Talmud and Rabbinics from the Jewish Theological Seminary of America and is a faculty member at Hadar. I'm so glad their book has brought them to our program. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. So to get started, uh, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? And uh, let's start with Josh. Uh,
1: Okay. Um, So I don't know how far you want me to go back, but I (laughs) New Jersey. You can hear, I live in Israel now, but I have an American, maybe not a New Jersey accent, but um, that's because I'm from South Jersey. Um, And I started learning Talmud when I was 22. I had started rabbinical school at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Um, I was actually in California. And I don't know, it got very, very quickly, I became very interested in learning Talmud. And uh, I'll make a long story short. It ended up staying in Israel, founding the Conservative Yeshiva where I teach at now, and doing a PhD in um, in Talmud at Bar Ilan University with a professor who's also at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Um, and I, I just always really enjoyed Talmud. Uh, especially trying to, I mean, I'll talk more about what Talmud really is, but trying to twist things like sort of untangle difficult passages, trying to make sense of them. How do they get to be that way? Um, and along with that, In my professional career, I've always been teaching non-academics. I never really taught in a purely academic atmosphere. I taught either regular people, which is is one of the great things I think about Talmud is it's something that uh, both professionals study, but also lay people study it all over the world every day hundreds of thousands of people probably study Talmud, uh, which makes it kind sort of unique uh, in the academic landscape. Um, and then I, I really can't remember the year we met. It was probably, Jason will remember it better, maybe around 2010, somewhere around there. Um, I it, believe. It, maybe twelve, something
2: 12, like that.
1: 2012, I don't know. Jason was, I was teaching. Jason's a, a little bit younger than me. And I believe Jason was um, substituting for me. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I was away on a trip, and Jason substituted for me, and it was a a shidduch, a, 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 a match made by the former Rosh Yeshiva, the head of the institution where I work. And he got the two of us together. And I I kind of remember sitting at the desk and saying, like, why don't we write a book in English? I think we both write in English better than we write in Hebrew, although we can read and speak Hebrew. Um, We like writing in English. And we both wanted to write a book. And from there, it just sort of we had the luxury of working in a non-academic kind of atmosphere, uh, so no one was telling us what we had to write about. We, we basically could make our own choices without any pressure, but we found that we worked well together, and we've been uh, study partners uh, over the last, I don't know since that point whenever that was uh and we we just i think we found what was really great is that our skills complemented each other uh we both brought different things to the table and just maybe another thing since this is the new books network and you have a lot of writers on here the process of writing with somebody else was really pleasurable um a lot of researchers and scholars and writers do it as a lone person working on you uh, by themselves. And I found it is really very helpful to have somebody I can always count on to read what I wrote, to bounce off ideas. Many ideas, the first time you have them are kind of bad ideas. And you need somebody else to say like, oh, that's not really – it doesn't make sense. And find it, and, and it gets better over time. And that, that's part of what the Jewish Study Yeshiva, what the Jewish Study Academy is always like. And bringing that to the written word, uh, I found very, very um, beneficial for our writing.
0: Well, that's great. Thank you for that. And uh, Jason, uh, w- w- what do you say? <laughs>
2: well, now I get to tell my version of the story.
0: Um, <laughs> Which, is, of course, in the true Talmudic uh, 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 fashion, is entirely different perspective. Yeah, totally, totally different,
2: but... Um, uh, Josh and I actually have a very similar background because I too grew up in New Jersey. Um, both of our parents, both of our fathers, were uh, congregational leaders in the conservative movement. Um, we have we have a very similar upbringing, and um, I also now live in uh, Israel. He lives in Modin, and I live in in Jerusalem. Um, but uh, my path to, uh, to to sort of getting into Talmudic study was um, came came a lot uh, in in my home. My my father was always very excited about um, studying Talmud, and that sort of introduced me to it. And then um, when I went to college, I had the privilege. I, I went to Columbia University. And I had the privilege of studying with uh, Professor Halivni of blessed memory. Um, Josh and I both had really the incredible experience of each of us individually getting to study with two titans of um, Talmudic research. Uh, I studied with Professor Halivni and uh, Josh studied with uh, Professor Shama Friedman. And um, I would say through Professor Halivni's class, it really got me excited about looking at talmud in this really interesting way and and trying to understand the development of the text um which led me down the path of of writing a phd and um i had i came to israel to work on my phd and then a few years after being here josh and i actually met for the first i did sub for him but the first time i actually met him was at a bar mitzvah uh (laughs) we sat together at a at a bar mitzvah and um Josh, uh, before working on reconstructing the Talmud, um, put out a terrific uh, Haggadah um, with which used sort of a similar, for similar the, kind of the, technique.
0: The the, 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 the um, uh, manual for Passover seder's.
2: Yes, the the manual for Passover seder's, which also has a history of development. So, uh, Josh. Did an incredible job sort of uh, deconstructing the history of that text and making it accessible to a wider audience. And um, I found that to be very inspiring. and And together, we you know in our meeting thought that we we started studying together, and it brought up this idea of trying to do the similar kind of thing with with Talmud, um both because of our excitement around uh, studying. Talmud from an academic perspective, and our desire to make that material accessible to a, a wider audience beyond the walls of the academy.
0: Right, right. Well, that that is a very noble. Um... Uh, ambition uh, to, to, to jump in a little bit to your book, um, for listeners who are not familiar with the Talmud, uh, Josh, could you tell us a little bit about what the Talmud, specifically the Babylonian Talmud, which is what your book focuses on, what is the Babylonian Talmud and what types of material does it cover?
2: How much right.
0: time
1: do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, the, the elevator pitch, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, so look, the Talmud is a book, the Babylonian Talmud is a book composed in Babylonia where, a majority of, let's say, the learned Jews were living from around the years 200 CE to 500 or so CE. And it's a recording. It's, what's amazing about the Talmud is the multiplicity of genres uh, of literature that are preserved in the Talmud. A large portion of the Talmud is legal discussions, but it's not all legal discussions about purely religious matters. I have, um, it's interesting. I have a, I have a, a cousin, a first cousin who was born and raised Catholic, my first cousin, and he knows nothing about Talmud, never doesn't really know anything about Judaism. And I got him to study a little bit of Talmud with me and he was amazed they are talking about things like loans and contracts and damages and marriage law and divorce law. It's not all discussions about how you communicate with God or how you pray or how you keep the Sabbath. Um, but what's – what's I think the one of the most beautiful things about the Talmud is the Talmud is all – um, discourse and mostly discussions and arguments. And unlike any other piece of literature that I'm familiar with, it's composed not just by one person. It's composed by lots of people, by a group of of men uh, living over the course of hundreds of years and trying to sort out the conversations, the arguments, uh, the development of their literature. Because it's not these. We don't have recordings of what they said. We have recordings of what was recorded, uh, you know, orally or written, uh, it, it makes it for a very unique challenge. I mean, I don't know all literature in the world, but my impression is that there's something that's more studyable. I don't know if that's an English word, but more engaging is probably a better word. I like to make up English words <laughs> for study uh, and for give and take. I mean, there's a reason why in English, like a Talmudic logic has sort of entered the lexicon. And it's true uh the Talmud is extremely complicated with, uh, a- questions and difficulties being raised and answers being given and sometimes the difficulties don't make sense and sometimes the answers don't make sense which creates more and more heaps and heaps and heaps of discussions um and it's once you get the expertise it does take some like the bar of entry is not small it's like it's hard to read the talmud even if you read it in english it's not or in some other language it's not an easy text it's quite opaque but when you have a good teacher you can start to make sense of things and it's very engaging and I find it very much appeals to certain people's thought processes. Um, so, the Talmud Clause c- covers a very, very wide span of literature, uh, including folklore and and legends and myths and legal discussions and all walks of life and anything from like what shoes a person should wear to how they should mourn for their parents if they die. And it really, there's like everything in there. So. Right.
0: And uh, Jason um, – in in your uh, book, you distinguish between uh, traditional Talmudic commentaries and modern critical scholarship, and you use uh, a, a, you you compare it to the difference between a builder versus an archaeologist. W- what did you mean by that?
2: Well, that's uh, Josh actually came up with that. I'll, Josh gets the credit for that metaphor, but I'll explain it. I'll explain it for him anyway. Um, the idea is that. Part of what makes the Talmud unique but also very difficult to study is that um, it's a tremendously large book. It's a tremendously large work. And because it's so large, there are oftentimes when you can find pieces of the, the text that, that contradict each other or, or don't, don't seem to agree. And um, that can present a challenge when you are uh, engaging with the text from a religious perspective right? Because at, at, at the end of the day, many of the, the hundreds of thousands of people who are studying the Talmud are doing it because it's a guide for religious practice. So if you identify it as a guide for religious practice in a way, or at least the foundation for a guide for religious practice, there needs to be an output that you can know what it is that, it is, that you're supposed to do. And that can be a particularly challenging thing if you have a contradictory text so some of the medieval commentators part of what it is that they try and do is they're very sensitive to the contradictions between the texts but they work very hard to use different techniques and methodologies to reconcile those contradictions right so the metaphor there would be like in order to ensure that the the house can stand you need to um support the the structure in order to make sure that that it can stand um, what the academic perspective of interpretation is it looks at those contradictions or looks at those seams that exist in argumentation and and, and development of ideas that exist in um, texts as they appear in different places, and sees them as differences. And it's an attempt to highlight those differences in order to uncover like an archaeologist would, the development of ideas, concepts and practices from the earliest texts we have from the rabbinic period, which I, you could date back to, let's say, second century BCE, um, and see how they develop all the way through to the sixth century CE.
0: Yeah. All
1: right. Can I add a word in on, on that too? Please, please. Uh, uh, you know, all, all academic study of religion probably faces similar ch- challenges. I mean, I've listened to s- Jesuit priests talk about the difficulty of, uh, of, on the one hand, going to the academy and trying to s- uncover what, the real historical background of the New Testament was, and then having to work at their churches and bring meaning uh, to people's lives from from the New Testament. So I don't think that the academic study of Talmud is in some ways the same as all academic studies of religion and has that tension versus uh, the historical approach versus a religious approach. But what I think the what is particularly complicated with Talmud is that it's so many strands of thought that are very obviously woven together, right? If I want to compare it with something like a book from the New Testament, a book from the New Testament presents itself as one cohesive whole, and scholars have to pick it apart. The Talmud barely even presents itself as a cohesive whole. It's clearly written over the course of hundreds of years, clearly written by a a, a lot of people, and obviously contradicts itself all over the place because of its very nature. So there's something even more intense about even a religious studies person has to, or even someone studying from a religious perspective, sometimes have to try to untwine, or it uh, might be another invented word, but. Take apart the strands of like of a piece of string and try to figure out which strand goes where. And, and in that sense, it's a little bit different than the academic study of other of of, of religious texts in general. Just the sheer uh, comp- complicatedness, another invented English word of um, of uh, of the the complicated nature of the Talmud
0: lends itself
1: complexity. There you go. This is why we I have a charuta a partner
0: here. A a, a great, a great team indeed. Um, um, uh, Josh, um, speaking of the different layers, um, could you talk a little bit about what are kind of on a formal level? uh, What are the different layers or strata uh, that are found in the Babylonian Talmud?
1: Right. So the Babylonian Talmud is sort of the end of a process process of rabbinic learning, that classic rabbinic learning that it was at its height from sometime after the destruction of the temple in the year 70 CE, the temple in Jerusalem, until, like I said, about, the fi- about 500 uh, CE. And it takes place in two different um, settings. It takes place in the land of Israel, uh, and eventually the second half of that period takes place in Babylonia. Uh, so there are rabbinic texts that exist before the Talmud, um, namely the Mishnah, which is the core uh, rabbinic text. But there are other texts that come from the land of Israel through the first and second centuries CE uh, that form the core of the of rabbinic Texts That eventually come to be commented on in two Talmuds. There are two Talmuds. There's one written. It's called the Jerusalem Talmud in Hebrew, the Palestinian Talmud in English. uh, And it was written mostly in the northern part of Israel or composed in the northern part of Israel. Uh, And that's usually considered an earlier version of the Talmud. something that traditionally had a little bit less authority. And the Babylonian Talmud is sort of the, the the culminating piece of rabbinic literature. Uh, The later inside the Babylonian period, there are already, there are rabbinic sages living in Babylonia for about 300 years. And they commentate on, they comment on each other, what is described in a later period, generation after generation, Uh, every, famous sage asking difficulties from one to another. There are at least six, seven generations of Babylonian sages. So you have that that double complexity of both within Babylonia, 300 or so years of, continuous and a very intense discussion and you also have these earlier texts from the land of Israel which are known for the most part to the rabbis in babylonia are commented on and sometimes even changed in very sort of like very subtle matters matters that we're not always familiar with they'll modify them they'll change the language a little bit they'll change the conclusions so uh, 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 an academic scholar always has to be like a detective trying to figure out which words come from which part which comes from from the land of Israel, which comes from an earlier part of Babylonia, which comes from the later part. Uh, It's not always possible to do, but by doing that, you can kind of tease out these threads and see where everything's coming together to put together um, the larger picture.
0: Right. And speaking of modern scholarship and and the Talmud, uh, Jason, what are some of the hallmarks of modern critical scholarship on the Talmud?
2: So uh, you could say that there there's sort of two different types of uh, interpretation. There's what's called lower criticism and higher criticism, um, which is also true in other. Uh, uh, the differentiation also exists in in the study of uh, other religions and and religious texts, or really any any ancient text. Um, lower criticism is, is the idea where there are different versions of the text that have been preserved in different manuscript traditions. Um, there's not a single text of the Talmud. There are, uh, different versions that appear in different written texts, um, that date back, uh, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, and, an analysis of the differences between those texts can sometimes yield interesting um, conclusions about how a text may or may not have changed over time. Um, so that's called lower criticism. And then higher criticism used to, uses techniques, which, um, as Josh mentioned earlier, the Talmud is comprised of uh, texts from different generations and different time periods. So we have texts... Or, or works that exist prior to the Talmud, which sometimes preserve earlier versions of those texts. And by comparing a version of the text, which appears uh, in in an earlier text to a text that appears in the later text of the Talmud, um, you can understand some kind of development of ideas. Um, on top of that also, the Talmud itself has a, a narrative voice. Um, It's comprised of statements made by different generations, but within the Talmud, there's sort of a narrative voice that uh, leads you through the discourse of argumentation between the conflicts, between the different sources that are brought. And the modern study of Talmud and modern scholars identify or isolate that um, narrative voice and The isolation of that narrative voice allows you to understand what type of uh, sort of packaging or context the narrative voice may have given to earlier statements, which is different from the intention of the person who made that original statement. Um, Or sometimes you can get an editor who could change some of those original statements. So uh, there are tools and techniques which... uh, academic scholars use to identify those different layers within the text. The simplest one is that the narrative voice appears in the language of Aramaic, whereas the statements or the earlier statements appear in Hebrew. So sometimes you can use those differences in language in order to identify different voices uh, within the text and those tools of comparison and isolation and understanding of contextualization allow you to gain a deeper understanding of how the text has developed over
0: time. Right. Um, So, um, uh, Josh, um, what is realia and how uh, does it help one understand the statement of the Talmud regarding when a person should recite the Shema prayer? (laughs)
1: <laughs> this is, okay, I got to think about this for a second here. Uh,
0: that's, a, that's a question from um, Moshe Benhamit.
1: <laughs> yeah, all right. I think I remember this one a little bit. I think it's in our introduction a little bit, um, if I remember. But as I said before, it's been a long time since we wrote this book. It actually was published in 2014, and we've been working on a lot of things since then. And as Jason knows, my memory is not what it was in 2012. I'm a little bit older now. Um, so, So look. Understanding the Talmud was written in, in, in the land of Israel in Babylonia fifteen hundred to two thousand years ago. They just had stuff that we don't have. Like they had science that we don't have. Everything about their lives was very different from ours. And it's so hard to keep that in mind all the time because we're so conditioned to think of like mundane things as, you know, our clothing and the way we wash and the way we groom ourselves and the foods that we eat and the way we travel to work and the way we communicate with each other. And even like even if you ask one of your kids they can't even imagine what life was like without a cell phone. Like, I can barely imagine what life was like without a cell phone. And I didn't have one until I was like 40. I still like – it's very hard to remember that people lived very different material lives back then. So that question is important in all different fields. What, what you're referring to is it was very hard to tell time at night, it's such an obvious thing. Like We think of it as like, oh, we look at our clock. It's right now 944 in Israel. I have multiple watches. I can look at my phone. I can look at my computer. Very easy. How do you tell time on a, on a cloudy night or on a, even with the stars? I mean, it's not precise. So I don't have a full answer to that, but there is um, what's, one of the things that's very interesting. This is a, um, a reading by Professor Men- Moshe Benovich of the Schechter Institute in Israel, who wrote a great book on the first chapter of the Tractate of Brachot um which talks about uh reciting the Shema, uh, a prayer said in the morning and in the evening. He talks about re- uh, reciting at night, and he talks about the the Talmud refers to some cryptic uh, uh, astrological phenomenon that, like the nor the 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 normal commentators living in France and Germany and Spain in the Middle Ages, didn't have access to Greek astro- astrological systems. They didn't speak Greek. They didn't have the Greek text. There was no way they could know them. But modern scholars, not me and not jason can read greek then we know what some of these things mean and he connected them up with greek astrological astronomical um signs and it just makes all of a sudden the talmud makes sense there's all sorts of things about like like various figures crying and braying and, and, and no one knows what they mean comes along somebody knows greek and says, "Well, i know exactly what that means and that's just a great example where, like, all of a sudden everything becomes clear. Um, and uh, it was it was very interesting. But I can't uh, overestimate. There's some of these things that it requires like, just a world of knowledge. And with teams of researchers relying on other people's fields – that's uh, the the great collaborative nature of the Talmud being opened up as a book, not just for Jewish researchers, but for Jewish researchers to avail themselves of historians and linguists and and scientists from all different fields. It's a it's a great comp, uh, contribution, I think, of the university to the study of of Jewish texts.
0: Yeah. I- I I could just say, for me personally, when I was reading your book and I came up uh, uh, um, across this, I I found it so fascinating because, having been raised in a very ultra-orthodox Jewish environment, where the 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 rhetoric was that you know the Talmud is this uh, you know very sacred uh, Jewish text, and that um, you know we're trying as much as possible to preserve the sanctity of the Talmud, to preserve the sanctity of our community by, you know, fervently embracing the Talmud and so on, and trying as much as possible to keep out quote unquote secular influences, modern secular influences in, in part through the study, the diligent, uh, a study of the Talmud, I just found it so fascinating that here is scholarship that shows that the people who wrote the Talmud themselves uh, were making sense of biblical verses, were making sense of biblical obligations, in part through their own knowledge of "Quote unquote," secular outside non-Jewish culture. In this case, you know, Greek astrological knowledge or whatever. Like it just, I found it profoundly ironic.
1: <laughs> I just got to explain this one to your listeners because it's really great. So the Talmud talks about dividing the night into three watches. I just found it in the books. So I can remember. Right. <laughs> Talks about three watches, and there's like signs for each watch. The first watch is the donkey brays. In the second, the dogs bark. In the third, the child nurses from the breast of his mother, which everyone's like, what? How do we know that the donkey's always going to bray during the first watch and the dogs are only going to bark in the second watch? It doesn't, make, it doesn't really make any sense. The Animals don't behave in this way. And so Moshe Benrich pointed out that these refer to – astrology right the donkey is ursa ursa major uh the dogs refer to hercules and he explains all these things and the woman with the uh the breast of the mother is cassiopeia who nurses her, her, her daughter which is just it's just such a fantastic explanation we really we really like that one
0: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, me too. All right, shifting gears here a little bit. um, uh, Jason, um, what happens when you apply the tools of modern scholarship to the Talmud's discussion of the maximum height of a sukkah, the small temporary huts constructed for the Jewish holiday of Sukkot? That's
2: a very specific question. What happens? (laughs)
0: uh, In other words, what, what the, the, maybe you could say a little bit about the Talmud's discussion of the height of a sukkah and then uh, so, what contribution wh- modern scholarship could yeah, so what I can say, could, is, could benefit, what I can could say is about
2: that chapter without getting into the details. Um, the the We actually begin the book with that chapter because it's a very good example of the, as I was saying earlier, the narrative voice of the Talmud um, playing a very important role in the construction, everybody get my pun there, in the construction of the text, right? Um, the What happens there is that there are earlier discussions dating all the way back to the Mishnah, which is one of the earliest texts, which talks about um, specific Jewish law. And this specific text is talking about the festival of Sukkot. On the festival of Sukkot, there's an obligation to build some kind of uh, some kind of dwelling that you live in during the festival where you eat your meals in and and sleep in. And um, as the rabbis do, whenever they're engaging with the subject, um, they need to define very specific rules about what one needs to do in order to fulfill their obligation. So there's a Torah obligation which says that you have to dwell in the sukkah. A
0: biblical obligation. What's that? A biblical obligation.
2: Yes, there's a biblical obligation which says that you have to dwell in the sukkah on this festival. And the rabbis are, have to determine, okay, well, then how do I know if this sukkah is the right thing, right? How big does it have to be? What does it have to be made from? What The the, the top has to come from things that grow on the ground. The walls have to be a certain height. There can't be this kind of distance between the walls and the, and the ceiling. And those in their own right have a very long um, history, but what happens in the Babylonian Talmud, which doesn't happen in texts beforehand is that the, one of the things that makes a Babylonian Talmud unique is that it tries to create conceptual frameworks for thinking about um, why laws or why rulings exist in a certain case. And when it comes to the, the the explanation of the sukkah, the conceptual framework that's developed in that text is to think about the sukkah as a temporary dwelling. Right? You don't. It's not like a regular house that you live in. It's something that's special for for the for the holiday. So, because of that existence as a temporary dwelling, the rabbis are interested in asking the question: Okay, how can I determine when something hits the borderline from? temporary to permanent. And what happens within that discussion is that it takes all of the earlier sources and puts them basically through the mill of trying to determine, okay, this earlier rabbi said this, does that mean that this rabbi thinks that it's temporary or not temporary? So that kind of abstraction and categorization is something that's very uh, emblematic of the type of thinking that happens in the, in the Babylonian Talmud and, the, and sort of the editorial process of the Babylonian Talmud, where the discussion takes the form of a conceptual framework and the person putting together that discussion takes earlier sources and runs them through that framework that's been set up. Um, so that type of zooming out and recognizing the, the envelope that goes around these earlier sources is is the type of thing that academic Talmud sort of allows you to do to to distance yourself from the different layers of the text and recognize that you know what maybe even the earlier sources didn't have this concept of temporary or not temporary dwelling, but the cons- later conceptualization is then read into those earlier sources.
0: I want
1: to add in a, a literary comment here. Just to um, this is a, a, a new
2: because I'm new impressed West, that I remember uh, that.
1: Uh, <laughs> So this is a tribute to my 12th grade literature literary, literature teacher, English teacher in high school, Mr. Lindblad, whose first name I don't remember, but he was a great and teacher. Uh, and he made us read a lot and he instilled in me a lifelong love of literature, which, by the way, is a part of my background for why I think I love Thomas so much that I love reading. Um, and he quoted E.M. Forster who said, oh, only connect. And he had this whole passionate speech about only connect. And one of the magical things about the Babylonian Talmud is it loves to connect everything. And it makes all these crazy connections and they, they, they don't make sense all that much. And this is what happens in that piece there. They connect some statements that don't pair up all that well, but this, this love of like tying everything into one big tight connection uh always makes me think of my 12th grade. i don't know if he's alive still probably not but if you're a descendant of mr Lindblad from atlantic city high school and you're listening to this podcast know that your i don't know your grandfather or father whatever he was was a great influence on in my life
0: What a beautiful shout out. Um, um, uh, 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 Josh, I'm curious, uh, what is the Afikomen and how does it relate to reinterpreting Greco-Roman laws and customs?
1: All right. Well, Zalman, you know what the Afikomen (laughs) is, right? Everybody, every Jewish child, it's probably the most loved Jewish ritual in the world. And, And if you go to a Seder, a Passover meal at a Jewish home, a traditional Jewish home, or maybe even not a particularly Jewish traditional home, the highlight, one of the highlights of the Seder, this festive meal where we retell the story of the Exodus from Egypt, is the leader of the house, usually the father, traditionally the father, takes a piece of matzah that Jewish bread, the thin Jewish, not particularly tasty bread, hides it, and the kids spend the rest of the meal looking for it, and if you bring it back, then uh, you get a present from your dad, and and it's really fun. It's like hide-and-seek for the Jews, uh, and it's a very popular custom, keeps the kids from driving everybody nuts during the rest of the Seder, and, and then we get to eat it for dessert. That's the other part, which is like, matzo is just... It's not really the most tasty thing in the world. As I always tell people when I teach about the Seder, if I went to somebody's house and they came out with this dry cracker and they said, here's your dessert, <laughs> I was like, what, are you, what are you crazy like? Where's the cake? Where's something sweet? Some fruit? Something better than that? So anyway, um, if you're sensitive to Hebrew, Afikomen does not sound like a Hebrew word. And in this chapter, and I, I wrote about this in the Hagada as well, my commentary on the Hagada. Um, the word has a totally different meaning in the the original Hebrew. I'm not really going to go into all the details about it, but basically the Mishnah, that early text says, you don't finish your Seder meal with an afikomen, which probably was some Greek custom of carousing and drinking and having a lot of fun, which, you know, I listened to something else. uh, Oh, a really good Another podcast. Can I mention a rival podcast? I don't know. If it's sure. This American Life was a uh, it was a great. Uh, the second episode was about a a family who a Jewish Orthodox family who celebrated Christmas. Uh, it was very funny. And uh, and one of the comments they made, uh, you know, being Jewish isn't isn't any fun. And so the guy said, Well, that's the that's the most Jewish thing you could possibly say. All so right. It's the original. It's funny. It's funny how the Jews transformed somehow in this twisted way a prohibition. Don't go and have fun at the end of your Seder. You're supposed to be studying Torah. Instead, what do we translate that, transform that into? The most fun thing that we do in the entire Jewish year, which is go search for the Afikomen. So we go through the history of that. Um, and it's fun. To, it's it's People like seeing how the things that we do today are totally different than they used to be. And there's something beautiful in that. There's, there is something beautiful in transforming an anti-fun message into a fun message. I, I kind of like that one.
0: So. Uh, that is really something. Um, uh, uh, Jason, what is a prizbul, and where did the rabbis get the idea for it? Okay,
2: so I feel like I'm I'm on a I'm on a test.
0: <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Okay. Well, what is a
2: prizbul, and where did it come from? Well. Like Afikomen, uh, prusval is also not uh, a uh, Hebrew word. It comes from the Greek. Um, and again, I'm not going to get into the... There are super, super duper uh, intense details about this, uh, about this issue. But basically, the Torah um, demands that there be a sabbatical year um, every... Seven years, and not only does the land lay fallow, but there's also a process of remission of loans. And um, already in the early, earliest of the rabbinic period, with one of the early, early rabbis, um, it becomes clear that loan collection is a challenge. Now, the prosbol, as we discuss in the chapter, is not necessarily directly exactly related with the sabbatical year it might be something that's more generally meant to help with loan collections but just to simplify the the issue the pros bowl seems to be some type of uh greek uh judicial procedure that was done which allowed for lenders to have an easier time to collect loans by involving courts in the process The reason why it's interesting and the reason why we wrote a chapter about it was again because it's another example of the rabbis engaging with the uh, environment surrounding them. Here, actually, um, instead of rejecting something that's going on in the surrounding environment, we don't do this, we study Torah. This is, oh, there's something here that's useful that's going on in the world around us. We have some kind of understanding of the judicial practices and the monetary practices of those living around us. And we see that it can be useful in our in our own lives. And the question is, how do we take something from, from sort of the outside and integrate it into, um, into our practice? And it becomes particularly interesting because the in a practical way, the introduction of this pros bull which turns uh, loans over to the court allows for lenders to sort of sidestep this uh, the remission of loans, which is required every seven years. Um, so opening up that ability for the rabbis to institute something which comes from the outside, which can theoretically allow for sidestepping Torah law raises really interesting questions about rabbinic authority. And the rabbis themselves reflect on this question and and within the discussion of those texts say, do we have the authority to do this? If the Torah demands that there's a remission of loans, what allows for the rabbis to step in and to engage and, and use this type of uh, argumentation, which, go, which is going to allow us to, to sort of not do what it is that the, the Torah says? Um, now, it's also interesting because in the context, it seems that the rabbis are really responding to a pressing economic need from both directions, meaning people need to receive loans if you know that loans are going to be uh, canceled uh, as it gets closer to the time when the loan is given, then no one's going to give loans anymore. And also, if you're giving a loan and it's hard to collect that loan, then it, there also isn't going to be an incentive to give loans. But at the same time, you also want people to continue giving loans because people need loans. So. It's clear that the rabbis want to engage uh, the needs of their community and to think about these things. And it's particularly fascinating that Hillel, one of the earliest rabbis, is engaging with something sort of a way that this is dealt with in the surrounding culture and is interested in integrating it within rabbinic practice.
0: Right. So, ju- just to recap, uh, yeah. uh, uh, the idea is that according to the Bible, you're um, you're not able to um, collect um, loans uh, that that were given uh, in every um, seven years. Uh, every
2: seven years, loans are canceled.
0: Right. right? But this course well,
2: you give uh, you, you give me money and I don't pay it back from you seven years from now I am I am free
0: right so this is a, a good idea in the sense that it uh, had the potential to alleviate the burden uh, on the part of the the, the borrower. The borrower. To, yeah. to, you know, not be stuck with these, um, um, the, you know, this mountain of debt. But the, the downside was that lenders, people who knew about this law, they would be reticent to give loans that were never going to be able to be paid back. So the rabbi is essentially. Well, the created- Torah was
2: already worried about that, right? The Torah says, don't keep your hands closed and refuse to give your your neighbor because you know that the sabbatical year is coming
0: right but the the torah the bible doesn't give a solution to this this tension uh, but the rabbis figured out uh, a workaround. They essentially said they created this uh, or used this idea of a prizboll that basically said that the loan that individual people contracted, that loan will go to the courts, and then the 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 borrower um, will be required to pay back the court the money that they lent uh, that they that they borrowed, and then the courts will give it to the original uh, um, lender, right? So this is a kind of classic workaround that the rabbis created. And that's what in the Talmud, the idea of the prismal is. But the part that your uh, chapter or your discussion of this um, adds is that this concept of a prismal did not originate within uh, a Jewish or rabbinic culture. It actually came from a Roman idea Related to some kind of uh, court uh, procedure, and that the rabbis adopted it for their own ends to help with this uh, uh, loan situation that was a result of biblical law. Yes. (laughs) Good summary. (laughs) <laughs> oh, terrific. <laughs> oh, okay. This brings me back. All See, right. it's, not, it's not so easy. I think
1: testing you. In uh, chapter seven, page seven, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I read the book, uh, to be honest, but Is I did it? not memorize it. Then again, I didn't read. I didn't write it. Um, uh, <laughs> um, let me ask you another question, uh, Josh. Uh, what Solomon, is Bir- what
2: is Torah, and how often it should it be
0: studied? <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it should be studied often for sure. I know that's the answer. Um, uh, what is Birkat Hamazon, and are women obligated to recite it? Okay, great
1: question. I I'm, I found the chapter already. I could. Uh, all right. So, *Birkat is the. Uh, it's usually translated as grace after meals, but no, no, no Jew would really grace. It. Like, we don't. Jews don't do the grace thing. We have like blessings, brachas. Uh, we got a lot of blessings. So it's the blessing recited after you eat a meal. Uh, and, and look, the place of women, in that chapter, we talk a little bit about the place of women in, in both society and in religious ideology. Uh, and uh, look, the rabbis were writing 2,000 years ago women uh the the free adult jewish male was at the top of the of the societal pyramid probably like every society and underneath that were women, uh, slaves, Gentiles, children, anybody who's not a free adult male. Uh, and I, I really don't think that that's the rabbis are not out of step with anybody else in their culture. Of course, it's a religious text. So we live with a religious heritage of that text. And we live in a society in which uh, at least we strive for the equality between genders uh, in, in the modern world. And, and that's a real struggle in the religious world. Uh, because religious, particularly Orthodox Jews, are living with with the reality of the heritage which they come from, which does not accord equality to women. And they live in a society where women, especially in the sort of more modern Orthodox circles, where women are actually totally equal. So I've actually found that in, in teaching some of the material from this book, this chapter is most interesting to people who are living that tension in their own lives. They They both want to maintain a high degree of fealty to the tradition, uh, and yet they feel something wrong, something amiss in denying women equality. Uh, And in that chapter, we go through the tension in some of the texts, like we do in all the chapter, uh, with whether or not women are religiously obligated like men, whether women have the same um, societal status of men. And, And basically what we point out, at least in this issue, is that women are treated, again, in this issue, We, like all human beings have an obligation. Women eat, children eat, slaves eat, everybody eats. Um, and they have an obligation to uh, to give thanks to God for the food that they ate, just like men do, because women and men benefit from food in the same way. Um, and so on the one hand, they're obligated in Birkatamazon because they're simply, in the early text, they're human beings. On the other hand, women, there's a, a leading, there's a, an element of leading, when it comes to the blessing after meals. It's it's like many complicated prayers, it's often a prayer said by one person and listened to by others. Um, and women did not enjoy the same uh, rights within society, the same status within society that men did. Uh, and that creates some tension where women are obligated to say the blessing because they're human beings, but to help others and recite the blessing is more controversial because they don't enjoy the same status as men. Um, and, and I really think that that's one of the things that's interesting in this whole chapter is to to see the um, struggles in the early texts with sort of disentangling the the equal status that everybody has created in the image of God versus the the sheer reality that not everybody has equal status within a society.
0: Right. And, okay, Jason, now you had time to warm up, so now you're ready for the next question. Uh, uh, In what ways do mourning customs found in the Babylonian Talmud differ from those found in earlier sources? You got the good question.
2: That was a good one. I'm ready for this one. I can do this one. You got it. Um, I could do this. Um, so, like we were speaking about earlier, how uh, Greco-Roman culture sometimes influences um, Jewish practice. Um, the chapter about mourning, we we sp- well, we spent some time talking about how uh, Babylonian practice is different from earlier practice. Certain aspects of mourning practice in Babylonia are different from mourning practices in the land of Israel. Um, The example that we give is after a death, descendants or close relatives sit Shiva. Most people know what that is, a seven-day mourning period. I'm sure there are plenty of uh, books and TV shows and podcasts that people have heard about this. Um, but there's a, there's a weird sort of uh, quirk in the in the rule that if the death occurs uh, before a festival, um, like Passover, then the festival cancels the mourning period. And the earliest version of that law, as it appears in the Mishnah, of the text from the land of Israel, someone has to have a three-day morning period in order for the festival to come and cancel the rest of the morning period. Meaning, if you don't have three full days of or two and a half days of sitting Shiva, then the festival would come and it would not cancel it. But if you sat Shiva for four days and then the festival comes, it will cancel it. The development that happens in Babylonia is that if any amount of mourning, even one minute, even 30 seconds of mourning takes place before the, the festival, meaning the person is buried before the festival happens, even if it's right before the beginning of the festival, then that mourning period, the Shiva will still be canceled. Okay, so it's a difference again between, does it have to be three days in order for the cancellation to happen? Or could it be 30 seconds, and the cancellation happens. And we trace those texts to identify these sort of differences that exist in the Babylonian Talmud. It's only a position that's in the Babylonian Talmud that any amount of time will cancel the morning if the burial happens before a festival. And uh, we're, we leave it to our good friend, uh, Shai Sekunda, who is a professor of uh, Talmud at Bard College. Uh, and an expert in Zoroastrian texts in their relationship to the Talmud, who um, talks about the fact that in Babylonia, there was an emphasis placed on not mourning too much, right? If you mourn too much, it's a bad practice. Um, It was frowned upon to cry for the dead in Babylonia. And we bring this connection to sort of raise the possibility that in this cultural context, maybe there was a willingness to be even more lenient about, well, I guess it depends on how, if you think it's lenient or stringent, but to, that's, a, that's a whole other question. But to have a different uh, sort of focus when thinking about the question of whether or not should a festival always cancel the mourning period or does it only happen after a significant amount of the mourning has already occurred?
0: right oh uh, thank you for that that's a really uh, wonderful answer uh, thank you um, okay uh, let's let's go to Josh
1: for what um, a question oh no you had them all written down <laughs> what you for loop all right
2: all right go ahead go ahead. <laughs> Ask a question that's
0: not about the book. <laughs> uh, I have a lot of. I, the, the truth is, you want speaking of the logic of this thing. The truth is that it was my assumption that if I asked questions based on the book, you'd have an easier time answering them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is there a question about the famous donkey. Yes, that's that's Ew. my that's my next question. Yes. Uh, All right, Josh wh- got the donkey. Th- 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 <laughs> not only do you know the answer, but you were able to anticipate the question. Uh, this is some well, that's high. You know he's a great
2: Talmudist.
0: Yes, this is some high Jedi slash Talmud master level stuff going on here. Um, what is the story of Rabbi Pinchas Ben Ya'ir? and his donkey, and what does it tell us about the place of magicians and miracle workers in a monotheistic world?
1: Oh, boy. Wow. That's a great question. That's a really good question. I like that one. So, so first of all, we have a chapter analyzing what's called in Hebrew an agadah. An agadah is a legend. And the Talmud is full of amazing legends. And they're wild. They're They're, they're, they're literary crafted pieces with literary structures and, and wonderful to analyze, very interesting from a literary perspective. And they also contained all sorts of fabulous characters that are very memorable. And one of the most, I think, memorable stories in the whole Talmud is Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yair, who is this, we'll talk about in a second, kind of a magician kind of person and also a rabbi, according to the Talmud. Uh, And he has a donkey who observes religious behavior doesn't eat food that hasn't been tithed and uh and is like a, kind of like a tzadik like a like a righteous donkey and everybody loves donkeys right there you know the idea like is full even in the torah we have a talking donkey so we get these this cycle of tales about Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yair and his donkey, and we do two things in that chapter, which I think are both really interesting. One is that we we show the way the Babylonian Talmud really enhances the art of storytelling uh the the palestinian talmud the earlier version of the talmud has a whole bunch of disparate tales that don't really make a whole lot of coherent sense and don't add up to much of a narrative and the babylonian storyteller who really is a wizard at his craft or their craft if it's a collected work fashions these disparate tales and changes them into one cohesive story about Rabbi Pinchas Ben-Yiir. Uh, and that, I think, is like, as somebody who loves literature, it's it's fun to see how stories develop over the course of time. Uh, it just enhances and enriches our understanding of those stories. And that's something that other professors, especially uh, Professor Jeffrey Rubenstein of uh, NYU, have done with many tales of the Talmud. And uh, I should add, in traditional Jewish circles, these tales were sort of ignored for the most part, or, or at least not studied quite as much, because they don't give you much guide as to how to live your lives. They're not concerned with Jewish law or per se. Uh, and uh, one of the revivals in the modern academic study of Talmud has been to pay attention to these stories as well. And there's been about, I don't know, a good 50 years of scholars paying attention to these stories. Uh, so the other thing that you asked about is his role of um, as a magician, along with tracing the development of the literature, we note a little bit of attention in leadership models in rabbinic literature. I... I I took a sociology of religion class at University of Michigan a long time ago. And I believe I remember that it was Durkheim who talked about two models of religious leadership. I believe Morning, it was
2: Durkheim. Wow.
1: It was a Yeah, you know, I, I spent a couple of years paying. I paid attention to a few classes at Michigan. I loved my sociology of religion class. It was at night and he brought munchies. So it was pretty. <laughs> yeah, he did. He brought food for everybody. Uh, and, and and we watched weird movies. Um, and. <laughs> And we learned a little bit about Durkheim. So I believe that you have the prophet and the the sage. And one is full of charisma, does all sorts of magical, charismatic kind of works. And the other... Is intellectual, Uh, and the rabbis tend to be on the more intellectual side. The normative rabbis are scholars; they're philosophers; they're almost like mathematicians. And but there was a group of religious leadership that was miracle workers. They they stories of of them appear in rabbinic literature. They help bring the rain down. They help uh, they cause God to respond in this world. They they do all sorts of magical uh, uh, um, acts and. It's a little bit like in the in the, in the the passage in the Babylonian Talmud about Rabbi Pinchas Ben-Yir. It feels a little bit like they're taking this charismatic miracle worker and rabbinizing him, making him act a little bit more. He still has some of those magical elements to him, but they're bringing him more into their world, let's say taming him a, a little bit, softening some of those maybe strange edges. I think in the Rishami, and the Babylon, in Palestinian Talmud, he leads around a group of mice. He, it does all sorts of weird stuff stuff there if i remember correctly he does some weird stuff in the babylonian talmud but it's a little bit more brought in and then there's a discourse on the relationship what is magic magic is human beings forcing if you will god's hand right you say some words you wave your wand around it a little bit and poof something happens whether or not god wanted it to happen or not that's not a particularly theologically correct statement. Uh, God is supposed to independently act. You're not supposed to force God to act. And there's a lot of that tension throughout Judaism. We have a second half of the chapter. Uh, um, uh, a friend of ours, Alvi Gail Manikin, wrote a chapter on uh, magic in Jewish uh, literature, which is, there's a whole rich history on, uh, on magical acts in Jewish literature. To this day, people still practice magic.
0: Uh, yes, absolutely. So I just want to mention, since I am a sociologist of religion, I'm so glad that you were um, uh, inspired by uh, that class, and I'm definitely taking notes in terms of how to keep students engaged in Can you sociology. And
2: tell them it wasn't Durkheim.
0: Well, yes. That, that, Durkheim? I, it? No, it's Max Weber. Uh, oh. uh, so it, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, you were close. You were close. Um, fix it in close. post-production. Take it uh, out. No, 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 no. It, gonna, uh, 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 you know, as just like with the Talmud, we leave in the imperfections. We leave in, you know, the, 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 the original statement with the revision. It's all part of the text. So yes. people could enjoy the, 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 the whole intellectual dynamic. Uh, I was but so you,
2: impressed. I was I was honestly uh, me so too, impressed. Me too, very impressed. Uh, <laughs>
0: it's not every day that you hear people referring to, to your field. So, so that's all good. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. There's uh, more to talk about in your book, but we are running out of time. So I want to thank you both so much for taking your time to share thoughts with us today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having
0: us.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much for having us.
0: That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.